Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. The question I've been thinking about surrounding this week's podcast is this. What would you do with your time if you had enough money to never work again? My guest this week is Dr. Sabrina Kay. She came to America from South Korea as a teenager, unable to speak English, worked as a janitor with family members, and enrolled in college. Never did get a bachelor's degree. She got pregnant, dropped out of school to care for her daughter. But by the time Sabrina had reached her 30s, she had amassed a fortune that put her in a position where she and her family members never needed to work again. The story is amazing on its own, but what really strikes me is what she's done from that point on and what she's doing going forward. Dr. K ultimately got a doctorate degree from the Wharton School of Business and is now revolutionizing higher education and corporate learning as the chancellor at Fremont College in Cerritos, California. I got a chance to speak with some of her students at Fremont College before we had the conversation you're about to hear. And as I drove away, I wondered, what would I do if I never had to work again? I thought, well, I'm going to speak at the Podcast Movement Convention in Orlando this week. Would I do that? Hell yeah! And after that, I go to see many healthcare providers to help them tell their stories. I would definitely do that because we need to care for the people who care for others. And after that, I go on an Alaskan cruise to give storytelling workshops to entrepreneurs who are trying to clean up and save our oceans. I'd definitely be there. When I thought back on it, I wouldn't have been at any of the events I just mentioned if not for this podcast. It was this podcast, Big Questions, that prompted people to reach out to me to ask if I'd speak at their companies, conferences, or events. And that's why I'm so grateful to podcasting. It is giving me the life that I'd like if I had enough money to never work again. I'm so grateful for that, for the friendships I've made because of it, and all the little moments that bring me smiles along the way. Let me tell you about one of them. A few weeks back, I asked everyone who listens to Big Questions to send me their definition of the word comfort. I asked you that because one of my sponsors, Sportique, makes the most comfortable hoodies and comfy tees you can imagine. And it seemed like a nice touch to send Big Questions comfy tees to the people who came up with the definitions that most moved me. The other day I got this email from Brian Ulrich in Denver went like this. Hi Cal, you laid down the gauntlet for a definition of comfort. Here it is in the form of a thankfully brief story. A few years ago, I was reading the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. There was an amazing passage where the author was describing the painstaking repair of his well-worn and well-loved leather motorcycle gloves. He told of the care he took to restitch the worn seams. You could tell that he really loved those gloves. Why buy new when these are so broken in and comfortable? 
The description in the book went on for an entire page. I asked my wife to read that passage. When she finished, I asked her if she knew why I had asked her to read it. She replied, your sweatshirt. When we lived in Johannesburg, South Africa, I had the most amazingly comfortable sweatshirt. It was probably a decade old at least. When I wore it, I felt like I was being cuddled by a baby blanket. It had horizontal stripes with colored stripes seamed into the background. I loved that sweatshirt and wore it every day that I could. It was so well worn that the seams were starting to unravel. One day I looked in the closet and the sweatshirt was missing. I came to find out that my wife had given it away to charity. Now, some less fortunate person is living the life of comfort that I had built for myself. Well, Brian, you're gonna have to send me your size and address because I'm gonna do exactly what I do if I suddenly came about a fortune that allowed me to never work again. I'm gonna send you a sporty hoodie to go along with that Big Questions t-shirt. And not only that, but Brian, please send me your wife's size. I'm gonna send her a hoodie too. That way, she's gonna know the definition of comfort. And she'll never give your Sportique hoodie away, I promise. Maybe she'll go to Sportique.com, use the offer code CAL, and get a 20% discount, and buy one to give to someone less fortunate. But she'll never give your Sportique hoodie away because once she puts on her Sportique hoodie, she's gonna know the definition of comfort. All right, let's get straight to Dr. Sabrina Kay. Dr. K, you know what I'm gonna call this episode? CEO me. Okay. As in, help me learn to be a CEO. So you, from the time you were a kid, were you thinking the way you do now as a CEO? Or was this something that you slow, this way of thinking you slowly evolved into? I grew up in South Korea. And at that time, women were raised to be a wife and a mother. And it sounds old-fashioned, but it was a, such a noble thing to do. And my goal was to be the best mom and best wife possible. I never thought that I was going to be an entrepreneur. I never thought I was going to be a CEO. I never thought I was going to start a business, make lots of money, or be famous or successful. Or on the cover of Fortune magazine. None of that. That, Especially from Korea, I never thought I was going to be cover of Fortune magazine. No, that was not even... Um, that was not even a wildest dream. How did it happen? And a lot of times when people think about entrepreneurs, is entrepreneur born or become? And that's, that's a lot of questions that people ask. 
And most people say that entrepreneurs are born. They, they're born with the tenacity and the risk-taking profiles and all of that. I am not sure if I can buy that yeah. because... Were you a risk-taker as a kid? No, I love things that are boring and predictable. <laughs> I like safety. I like consistency. I look at that consistency and congruence as integrity in life. You see balance as integrity. Because mm -hmm. your actions wow, and your I've words. I've never heard that before. Integrity is really the equality of actions and words and thoughts. I, I never looked at integrity that way. Mm -hmm. I looked at integrity as honesty. That's, as that's a morality. There's a difference between morality and integrity. Morality is knowing right from wrong. Honesty is morality. Um, loyalty is morality. Integrity is acting on that honesty. Your words, your thoughts, and your, your actions have that congruence, and that's integrity. So for me, that was really, really important because that predictability gave me the safety. Okay, so if you could depend on somebody, they had integrity. Correct. And growing up in South Korea, third world country, there were a lot of ups and downs in life. And that I think that may have just given me very risk-adverse profile as a person. So I don't like doing anything risk-taking, uh, including roller coaster ride. <laughs> okay, no roller coaster rides, but your life becomes a roller coaster ride. I end up starting 11 companies from scratch. How, how did this happen? Like you're in South Korea. Mm -hmm. When did you come to America? I came here when I was in college. So I was already an adult. Didn't speak a word of English. Um, Where are you going to school? I was going to Cal State Long Beach because I, you know, didn't speak any English and there's SAT and I couldn't like get into any other school. And that was a state school, local state school that accepted me. I took ESL class, uh, ESL placement test. They told me that I had to take six years of ESL before I moved to English 101. I'm thinking to myself, I thought the college was four years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be six years before you could start college, Start basically. the college. That's how bad my English was. What happened? Um, I learned English in Korea, but from a Korean teacher who did not speak any English. So it was very difficult for me to speak or understand all the grammar that we learned were just really not the right type of grammar that was useful. I went to first ESL class, and that was the first time I've ever seen a guy who was not even related to me. Because growing up in, growing up in Korea, we were told not to talk to any boys. I was um, only... The people who are available to me were my brother, my teachers, and my dad, uh, my cousins. From the opposite sex. Sure. And I went to all-girls school. We were separated from boys. There was no co-ed of anything. 
Um, so college was pretty rough. And first guy I talked to, I ended up marrying him and had a child. So I dropped out of college being pregnant with no college education, without speaking any English. And I had no choice. I was um, doing all kinds of odd jobs. What were you doing? Well, we. so my father, who was a very successful um, person in Korea, became a janitor here and was making $1,000 a month. He thought, coming to America, now we have five people in our family, if we all become janitors, we're gonna make $5,000 a month, we're gonna be rich. So first job, we were all janitors. You know, The whole family was whole janitors? Fam whole family. What we do you learn being a janitor? Um, not a lot other than how messy people are in their offices and what's in the trash can, and, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but we learned the work ethics, so we, the whole family stayed up until very late, and we did that. And then my mom felt, okay, this is not good. We're going to do something else. She saw a lot of people making very inexpensive accessories and clothing in Jabber Market here in downtown Los Angeles, uh, and mostly they're Koreans. So she made friends with them, bought these, and then brought it down to Orange County close to the border where a lot of Hispanic people were buying inexpensive stuff to take it home to Mexico. So she started selling, you know. She started out as an entrepreneur. <laughs> we didn't know what entrepreneur was, but right. she was. Is it just yeah, um, extra she was cash just, on the yeah, side? Yeah, extra cash on the side. And she was making a lot more money than any of our, uh, our you know, our family. <laughs> so we, all kids kind of learned, we are not going to be janitors. We're going to do what mom does. So I bought um, these plastic accessory belts at that time, like in the in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> those like 50 cent uh, belts were just really uh, in fashion. And I sold it for a dollar or two dollars. And then my brothers got into these like very inexpensive watches. It was a dollar, two dollar watches. And then my other brother got into um, luggage because, you know, a lot of Hispanic people needed luggage to put their stuff to take it to Mexico. So we're oh, all, all we were wow. street merchants, basically. And then we became very familiar with that Koreatown Jabba market in the fashion industry and started selling clothes. And one day I saw Korean newspaper talking about, you know, the fashion industry and all these merchandising is going to change because of computers. And computer-aided design and manufacturing is coming into uh, to the industry, and there was a phone number of a software company at the end of the article. So I made a cold call to that company, and I told what you them, say? And I said, um, I am in the fashion industry. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'm interested in your software. I'd like to come and see the demo. And they said, what's the name of the company? I made it up, and I went and saw them. And then when I saw the computers, I realized that all these Korean fashion designers and pattern makers who couldn't really go mainstream because of their language barrier, the language of the computer 
could actually change the trajectory of their future. So I told them that these Korean merchants really need this software. And if you can teach me how to use this, I speak Korean, I can go and teach these Korean designers and, man, uh, and pattern makers how to use the computers. I'm sure that software developer looked at me like, you are so crazy. <laughs> but instead, he taught me how to use the computer and also donated the software to me. Whoa. Yeah, so I got on a, a cold call. On a cold call. First time I met him. Uh, his name was John Robinson. And, and where did that lead? I came home and got a garage space in a Koreatown. <laughs> had a cockroaches all over and went to the sidewalk to hire the people who were sticking out their right thumb. Brought them back to the garage space to clean it up. Killed all the cockroaches together. They were together. like hitchhiking or they well, were? Well, they were looking for work. Looking for work. Yeah, okay. like a dollar or $2 an hour or sometimes, you know, you, you, you pay like $50 for the day. So I got them because I didn't have any money to buy chairs or desks. We we got like a scraps of woods and, you know, put them together like desks. Made your own and, office. Yeah. Right. And made and got all the credit cards, every single possible credit cards I could because they were going to donate the software to me, but they, I had to buy the hardware. So that's how I funded my first business through credit yeah. cards. I highly do not recommend to do that ever. It's not a good way to finance your company because credit card bills were due every six months and I had to get different credit cards to pay for the other credit cards. And it was oh, just- Oh, what a cycle. It, it, is, it was really, really scary. To this date, I have no debt. I don't like debt. I don't. I pay off my credit card every single day because of the trauma that happened uh, when I started my company. But that's it just how the, that the bills just kept on coming, coming and coming and coming. And we, I had no choice. I had to make make it happen. Otherwise, my whole family. So now, by that time, now you've got a little girl. I have a little girl. And I couldn't take care of her. I wanted to provide a good family for my daughter. So my parents moved in with me. And I told them that I would be responsible for the family finances if they can help me to raise my daughter. So now I'm responsible for not only for me and my daughter, but mom and dad family. and the whole family as well. And brothers my, too? My brothers were still in school. So my parents were working hard to pay for their tuition. And I said, I'm going to take care it's of all, all these. It's all on your back. Are you the oldest? Or? I'm the oldest. The oldest. Okay. <laughs> and when you said that, did they say, okay, you can do it? Or yeah. did they say, you sure you can pull this off? Family really did not have a lot of choices. So when there is a little competition, you can win the game. Right. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of choices, wow. you know, for what we had at that time. This seemed like a really, really great opportunity, you know, having a opportunity to have a business. And even if it was a garage space for us, it was an office, you know, quote unquote wow. office. And it was it was fantastic for the family. My parents, my dad helped me with accounting. My mom, you know, came and 
cleaned and organized and my brother came and helped uh, at times. And then my daughter learned how to use the computers and gave demo to our students when they were applying for the college. How old was she? She was, so, you know, by the time when, when we started, you know, when she started doing demos and stuff, she was probably six, seven years old. When I started, she was much younger. But when she was six, seven years old, when she was giving demos, of course, students who were scared of computers saw a little girl doing the so demo. Smart. It was just so sold. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to convince <laughs> anyone that you you can use the computers and be a better designer. So and now then, this is this this is a company that would eventually sell for more than a billion dollars. Yeah. So that was uh, really the beginning of Art Institute of Hollywood. So how, like, how does you go from cockroaches in a garage that you're just stomping on to a billion dollars? Doing the right thing every day. We had partnership with that software company, and my deal was that our students and your software will be sold as a package together to your customers. And for the customers, they don't have to train their own people because they already have the operators. And when the computer software company sell 200 software licenses, they needed 200 operators. Our students had an over 95% job placement every single year when they graduate. So it was like, talking about viral, it was viral. Apparel News sent, you know, put us as a uh, on the front cover of the newspaper, saying it's revolutionizing the fashion industry. As soon as it happened, um, so you just had to find the right people who needed to use the software. Basically, a lot of the designers and pattern makers who were already in the fashion industry, there were, there were over a million of them uh, in in Los Angeles at that time. They all needed reskilled with computers. We were the only game in town. We had exclusive. You were contract. the bridge between people who needed to be educated mm -hmm. and the company with the software. Right. Right. Wow. So we grew very fast, and then we became an accredited institution. We became the real college, and then within few years we became big four one of the big four fashion colleges in the country. And then- What uh, was that like? You know, every single day was such a struggle. I did not- You didn't have time to look around and say, isn't this great? Yeah, I didn't have feel of success. Wow. Every day was 18 hours a day, seven days a week. I never had a vacation. I was never sick. There were times that you know, because I didn't know how to manage the finances. When there was no money in the bank and I have to make the payroll, I would be sitting in the corner of the room crying all night and, oh my God, what, what am I gonna do tomorrow? Even when you're very successful. Because this is what I just learned, I didn't know this, but when you start doing good, then you have to invest more in it to scale yeah. and that's the dangerous place. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, that's like what I'm looking at now. Yeah. And also success is never just a straight line. And every single day is very, very different. Some day feels like a success. The next day feels like it's going to go bankrupt tomorrow. It feels really, really weird. It, startup world, until you have somewhat of stability, there is always ups and downs. And you only look back knowing that was a success while you're in it. It doesn't feel like success every day. You got to see the billion dollar sale <laughs> to enable you to look back and say, oh, I guess we did good. We did okay. We did okay. Yeah. So the first sale was not billion dollars. The first sale was to a publicly traded company called the EDMC. And they came, the founder of EDMC, Bob Newsom, is an amazing, inspirational person. He came to have a lunch with me. And we sat down and started talking about how to change lives and how to do the right thing and how to make bigger impact in the world. And Art Institute and Argosy University was under EDMC. And I had one campus in Hollywood. He wanted to put all these computer fashion program in all of art institutes. There are 57 campuses and changed the name to Art Institute of Hollywood. I was so inspired by what he was doing and I wanted to be part of that organization because I never had that type of mentorship. I never had a personal growth. It was just me. And um, money was great. When I sold it, I had no debt. There was $2,000 copy or lease. That was a debt that buyer assumed. And they probably have never had a sale like that. And it was a very comfortable nine-figure sale. And it was enough money for me and my family to retire for the rest of my life. Wow. But for me, what was really important was my personal growth, being part of that organization and being part of that bigger picture. How old were you when I you was in my 30s? So you're in your 30s and you basically, do you remember like signing a oh, contract yeah. that oh, basically yeah. allows you to never have to work another day and, yeah. and you sign it? Yeah. And then the next day you wake up, what are you thinking? I was really scared. Um, After you I was just so in scared. all this money. I was so scared that I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I almost felt, um, I told this to so many entrepreneurs, when you sell, that would be the best and the worst day of your life because you lose your identity, you lose your purpose. I was so depressed. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I started piling up on my on my plate. I ended up giving away money in a meaningful way. Also, I had mentor who was also philanthropist. Following his footsteps, uh, his name is Frank Baxter, who has really been an angel in my life, has shown me all the great things that my father, who is also an angel, could not show me in America because this was not his country. But Frank kind of came in and became that angel to show me 
what our purpose is and how to be impactful in other people's lives. And I felt complete duty that I need to go and do something to make the difference. I didn't know what that was. So I ended up serving on over 30 different charity and civic boards. And it was just incredibly difficult because I was on the board of the homeless shelter, Weingart Center, and then I was on the board of California Fashion Association. I was on the board of the American Friends of the Louvre Museum. So you can see it was all <laughs> over the place. And I, it's like you want to prove to yourself, you see, I'm still yeah, working here. I'm still working, exactly. Yeah. That's, you know, when people are depressed and they don't feel worthy, some people do drugs, some people drink. I was a workaholic. You joined boards. <laughs> you know, and workaholism wow. is one of the loneliest disease in the world. Wow. Because no one thinks you're sick. And workaholism, you get actually praised for it. People call you that you are an inspiration and they keep feeling that fire. If I drank that much, I'm sure my friends and family came and told me, you got to stop. That would have been an intervention. That right. would have been an intervention. In this case, you only get pra more praise. So I keep doing more and more and, and more. And now you say, well, look, she could, she doesn't have a work a day in her life. And look what she's doing. Yeah. So because of that emptiness, I end up starting more businesses. And I went back to school. And end so up now doing you're still working 18 hours a day. More. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you never had a moment where you thought, okay, let me take a cruise or something. No. 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 And I end up also doing four graduate degrees, starting commercial bank, bought Fremont College, Dale Carnegie, um, as a part of my doctorate dissertation when I okay, was in so the doctorate now, program. All right, so I'm seeing, I'm seeing some threads to pull on here. Mm -hmm. Number one, so you go to college, you're told, hey, it's going to be six years before you can even take your first class. Then you meet a guy, you're told, do not speak to men. You talk to him, and now and the next thing you know, you're pregnant. He's gone. And you can't go back to school. So tell me if I'm wrong. I'll show them. I'll go back to school and I'll do four times as much as I could have done when I started. I wish I was that girl. Everything's right up to I'll show them part. Really? I didn't have that. You didn't I have went that. back I, I to them. school out of fear. That Dear. Out of, I would never be good enough to get another job. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. It is absolute truth. You were and scared. I was so scared. You just that made I a nine-figure deal, and you yeah. were scared that you weren't good enough. I, w I felt like an imposter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why? I think we are um, the stories that we tell ourselves. And I grew up in Korea where I was not ra uh, praised 
but I was expected to be number one all the time. And when I get A plus, I'm loved more. So the performance love was was really embedded in my brain, which I didn't know until recently. So I went back to school out of fear that I want to meet everyone's expectations because now people think I'm really smart, but I don't even have an undergrad. I didn't even have you know, a college degree. I wanted to go back and learn. When people were talking about financials and EBITDA, I didn't know how to calculate these things. (laughs) So I, I went back to- You made nine figures before you knew what EBITDA was. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. I love this. It, this is this is beautiful because it kind of tells you that if you follow your instincts and you know what's organic, authentic, real and you just go with it, you can do everything that they're trying to teach in the classes. Also, at the same time, when that happens, it's really important to be humble and really know what you should have known. Uh, when I went back to school and learned all the languages that business people were using. What was that like? It was such a surreal experience. Because you knew it. Without knowing how the right. wording for right. it. So it's almost like you've been cooking French food all your life and you <laughs> finally went to Paris. <laughs> oh. And it felt at home and I felt more like myself when I learned. So MBA program was so much fun. So you went to get your master's before you, before you, without a regular bachelor's. I still don't have bachelor's. <laughs> Okay, you know what? This is wild because the other day I just learned what an SME was, a subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. And someone said, well, Cal, if you're going to write a document about yourself to let people know that you're helping companies tell their stories, you have to put SME. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's that? And he said, subject matter expert. SME. SME. (laughs) (laughs) SME. Yeah. And I said, you know what? If I put SME, people might not think it's me mm-hmm. because they'll think, well, Cal would never put SME mm-hmm. because that's like the business vernacular. Yeah. But help me out here. If I put SME, mm-hmm. will that give business people in business the idea, okay, he's authentic, but he also knows our parlance. He also knows the way we're talking here. Or am I going to look like, hold it, come on now. We know you haven't been in business. We know you can tell a story. Now all of a sudden you're a SME? I think you need to do what's really authentic to you, but you can understand their language. I think that was what's important for me. Going back to an MBA program, as a classroom project, actually, uh, it was a corporate strategy class. I wrote a thesis about community commercial banks. 
And I started a commercial bank after I was done because that thesis seemed very authentic to me. But because I knew the language that other people were saying to me, I was able to communicate. Okay, so that so answers the tool. question. It's it answers tool. the question. I should be saying SME. I'm a SME. Yeah. You don't have to, but when someone says you are a SME, you know what they're talking about. Oh, okay, so I can kind of be humble and quiet. Or if, just to say whatever is feel, feels right to you. I think three years from now, SME will be your word. Today, it may not be because you're still laughing and smiling when you say <laughs> SME, right? So it's not your word. Don't say it until so, it's yours. Okay, so... It, it, Okay. I, so I words, but they, if I don't say it, how will it become mine? I, I got to say. You hear more of it. All right. Just, and you're in the environment. All right. I That's got the it. integrity about your thoughts, words, and actions. All right. It becomes part of you. And what I felt really uncomfortable before I went back to school is, and I, the reason why I felt imposture is because I didn't understand the other side of the language, but I had to pretend that I understood. Oh, because yeah. when we were negotiating, oh they were giving God. me X multiples of EBITDA. I didn't know what that meant. And I kind of like had to pretend like, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I think multiples are great, you know. <laughs> but when you went back to MBA program, not only did I know how to do the EBITDA multiples, I knew how to get to EBITDA and value the company differently than just EBITDA multiples. Oh, boy. Should I go to business school? You don't have to. I don't have but to. But it is very helpful to know the language of the business, especially accounting language. Warren Buffett says, you know, accounting is a language of business. And he talks about how important balance sheet is. And that's the reason why in financial statement, balance sheet comes first. Most people only look at PL, profit and loss statement, because that's cash and it's easy. But balance sheet is really the prediction of how the business does. These are the things that I would not have learned if you hadn't gone if back I to hadn't school. Because you were just doing it on instinct and, and, and making day it work. to day operations that did not give me time to breathe, where Education was such an amazing turnaround for me as a human to know different parts of life and different parts of I, the business. I'm putting the pieces together here. So this is why once you started in getting these masters, you couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. That I, that's exactly sense. right. Uh, I went to my professor and who was a founder of the program and told him I had so much fun, I don't wanna graduate. And he goes, you passed, you need to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, why don't you go and get your PhD? So I gave him the recommendation form from Wharton. Now from USC, the girl who couldn't even graduate from state school now graduated MBA from USC. And now I'm going to an Ivy League for a doctorate program. Oh, right? And he goes, you know, I was kidding. Uh, this is in University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. How are you going to get there? And I said, I'll commute. 
And I did. What? Yeah. Because I already had businesses here in Los Angeles. I started, I already started, you know, investment firm. I had a real estate company and I started a bank. So I had to commute from LA to Philadelphia. Luckily, I had enough money to commute. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what the amazing coincidence is? Me, a SME, I I didn't even know I was a SME. I'm going to be speaking at the Wharton School of Business in October. Amazing. Yeah. It's such a great school. I feel that my heart grew by being in Philadelphia because it was such a different city. The liberalism is real. It's, 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 it's more real than California liberalism. And uh, diversity is even more prevalent there. And professors really feel that it is their duty to save the world. And we say those words with a such light rhetoric, but these people, you can feel their heart when they talk about it. And because of their passion, I, after the first week, I came home and bought Fremont College as a laboratory for my doctorate dissertation. Okay, so how, like, you go there for a week I was so inspired. Did you know what your dissertation would be at that point? I didn't know the word dissertation. (laughs) That was not an ESL language (laughs) or the business language. EBITDA, dissertation. That that was my life, you know, either business life or ESL words that I learned. I didn't have any other friends. So I didn't know what dissertation was. And people were talking about, what is your dissertation topic? That I'm like... Okay, I need to look it up. I better buy a college. Back this up. Yeah, I've, I needed a data set. So what was your thinking to establish this thesis and buy a college to prove whatever your thesis was? Did you know your thesis was right? Or did you figure, you know what, if I get this college, I can look into it and come up with something good? I was just sitting in the classroom and it was so surreal to me. I was single mom, immigrant, couldn't speak a word of English, couldn't graduate from state school. I'm sitting in an Ivy League doctorate program with such amazing colleagues and professors who are so inspiring. I felt that America's disparity between haves and have-nots did not come from socioeconomical differences, gender differences, or racial differences. It came from knowledge differences. Oh, so this is your whole experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the schooling, so I had to figure it out for myself. But what about all those people who can't figure it out? Right. And they can't get into the Ivy League school. How do they get through this? America is number one country in the world. It's number 23 in STEM education out of 25 developed countries. It's a social crime to have that type of education system in this one of the best countries in the world. I grew up in South Korea and I had a great education, great public education. So when you bought Fremont College, Mm -hmm. 
What, what are you feeling like when you sign the contract to buy a college? Well, I had done couple, I bought a couple more colleges before uh, through my investment company. So I had done that before and I have done a turnaround. So that part wasn't scary. What was scary is, am I going to be able to prove my hypothesis and pass my program? (laughs) Can I graduate? Okay. And your hypothesis was exactly what? My hypothesis is students without academic rigor because those are most of our students, students who have B's and C's in their school, with a focus and discipline and desire to excel, they are going to be A-plus employees and contribute to the society and be a meaningful member of the community. That was my thesis. If you do not take care of those students, especially in the inner cities, they can join the gangs, they can go into welfare. We're never going to make middle class in America. So you buy Fremont College here in Cerritos, California, and we're sitting up here, it's beautiful. Thank you. What happens now that you, uh, what do do you call yourself? Do you call your, like obviously now, students are calling you? Chancellor. Oh, Chancellor, not Doctor, Chancellor. Well, Doctor K is what they call me. Right. But my title is at a chan- the Now is you're a Chancellor, a chancellor mm-hmm. and you get to be the Chancellor because you bought the school. Right. How do you go about proving that you can take those B and C students and turn them into A plus students? So I end up doing. Um, join doctorate program and do another master's while I was there because <laughs> I had a lot of data set. And what you're talking about, you end up doing a lot of research um, to prove your hypothesis. And I jokingly say I started collecting degrees, but it's because there's so much material that you had to write. Reality was a little bit more difficult than the degrees that I received. Master's degree was about coming up with the learning models of how to work with these students. How are they motivated? What are the human motivations? And so qualitative studies of all these different philosophers of from B.F. Skinner to John Paul Piaget to Lev Vygotsky, who has come up with a social cultural learning. And we put all of that together with Ned Herman's different brain functions and core competencies and came up with different learning models. So that became a framework for Fremont College to make the programs so that students are learning by questioning. Because by questioning is Socrates, how Socrates right. taught his disciples, because if you know how to frame the question, you can get to almost any answer. But at school, we're taught just ask any question. There are no bad questions. There are bad questions. <laughs> I agree with that a million percent. Not only that, you can have a great question, ask it at the wrong time, and it becomes a terrible question. Absolutely. And you frame it in a wrong way, you'll get a completely different answer Correct. than what you're looking for. Yeah. 
a lot of the learning methodology that we have are the two things, how to ask the right questions so that you can frame the question. And the second is how do you collaborate and work with as a team? And that involves listening. Listening and also participating. A lot of times that uh, people are listening or hearing, but they're not actively participating in the conversation. And that's pretty much the framework that I came up with. Um, How's it working? I think it's working well. And how long have you been? It has the been now twelve years. Twelve years. Yes. How many students have graduated? Uh, hundreds. I I don't have the exact number. Every year at the graduation, the stories that we hear from our graduates bring tears to my eyes and heart because these are the students who are single moms came from battered um, background with some are with autistic children um, had students who went to the war came back from Iraq uh, without a leg want to go back to school to better their lives and these stories are real. And I see them here every day. So who cares at this point how well it's working because I see the reality every day. Um, the thesis doesn't matter anymore. You're seeing like you did early on, this is working. Yeah, and I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, you know, when I graduated, the thesis actually oh, it, it was works. proven. Yeah, okay. So that study was They believe great, me. Yeah, the, the study was a great study. And I did 100% quantitative analysis with all the... Uh, I, I not only did Fremont College, but I also had other school data at that point because we started collaborating. I had 50,000 subjects. Um, and those observations of longitudinal study of how the students progress and what factors really matter with the student success, they're all really, really important studies. But for me, what matters is that one student that you saw today even, that single mom who is seeking, how do I balance my life? I have a three-year-old kid, but I still care another student who you know tells me the story of you know one student who who graduated with a massage therapy program but thinking maybe i'm going to go and get my bachelor's in business because i know veterans and they have a lot of ptsd and i want to just serve that community open the spa for that community and let figure me out, figure out how to do this let as me a business figure out. Let me understand the EBITDA here. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I say, hallelujah, you go for it. Okay. So, you know, this brings us to an interesting point because this morning uh, we did something that made me feel really proud. And I'm so glad you had me out here to speak to the students. Yes. And you created Fremont College Podcast. Yes. Today. And you inspired us to do that for our stories, our students' stories to be told. I'm so looking forward 
to hearing what the students come back with. Uh, because you mentioned a, a mom who brought her child to school because she didn't know what to do with her child and wondering, how do all moms do this? Mm -hmm. How do they balance their little kids, yeah. their jobs, their schooling? And it's going to be a fascinating podcast, but I find out that this amazing woman is on Instagram and she's got half a million followers. Mm -hmm. So when her podcast goes out, it's going to be an instant success. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't know what to do with it. And you ignited that fire in her. And how we help each other as humans, from human to human, is what the humanity is. If we don't help each other and inspire each other, our humanity will be sucked up by all of our technology. I'm here. <laughs> I'm right here. Yes. I got to thank you for this amazing day. Your, your story so resonates with me. I, mm -hmm. I, I can't believe it, but I feel it. Yeah. yeah. And I wish you so much success. I will come back. I will help the other students while they get their podcast started. We'll talk to them about questions, listening, storytelling, and we're going to see what other great things you're doing here at Fremont College. I know you're going to have the best, but I wish you things you can't even imagine, great things thank going you. forward. And thank you for turning me into a SME that I can laugh about and Maybe down the road, I'll be able to say it with a straight face. I'll always remember you for that. Thank you. And you have been a great inspiration for our students and also giving us a platform to tell our stories. So Fremont College will always be so grateful for your presence today. All right. Well, I'll be back. Thank you. All right. The alarm has gone off. The Chancellor has other appointments to take care of. So we will leave it at that for now. And cheers. That about wraps it up. Gotta thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start this podcast. Tim, I resisted, 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 but you kept at it. And now here I am giving a talk at the podcast movement convention. God bless you. Want to thank my pals at Sportique. If I suddenly came about a fortune that enabled me to buy any clothing in the world I wish, you'd find me in my Sportique comfy tees and hoodies. I see my kids put them on and their friends put them on. And it just brings me joy to spread the joy. Thank you all for listening. If you can find a way to do what you want to do, if you've come upon a fortune and never had to work again, you will be a very rich man or woman indeed. Cheers!